Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to New Books in Film. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Bryn Upton, Associate Professor of History at McDaniel College, about his book, Hollywood and the End of the Cold War, Signs of Cinematic Change. The book was published in 2014 by Roman and Littlefield and is part of the Film and History series edited by Cynthia J. Miller. In this volume, Dr. Upton seeks to answer several key questions, such as, has the end of the Cold War altered how we tell our stories? Has it changed how we perceive ourselves? And in what ways has our popular culture been affected by the absence of this once-dominant presence? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bryn Upton about this still-relevant topic. Welcome, Dr. Upton. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, before we discuss your book in detail, Bryn, can you review your education background as well as other information you think is worth the audience knowing about what drew you to this topic? Sure. Well, um, I did my undergraduate work at Bowdoin College up in Maine. Um, and a few years later, I went to Brandeis University, where I got my Ph.D. in American history. Uh, while I was there, and I've always enjoyed films, and um, and I've always liked to use um, – to use film as sort of a, 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 a common language would have break down um, maybe some barriers between people um, when you're talking to people of different generations or from different backgrounds. Uh, a lot of times you still have some of the same, especially major films in common. Um, when I got to um, when I got to Brandeis, I was actually uh, fortunate to uh, do some TA work during my graduate years um, in the American Studies program there. Uh, where I worked with Tom Doherty, who is uh, is an amazing film scholar, um, and that uh, and and working alongside of him and, and reading his work and, and reading what he assigned his students, um, so I could I could better um, help out as a TA. Uh, that just enhanced uh, my love of film and my understanding of it. And so when I uh, came here to McDaniel College um, to teach. 
uh, I found myself returning time and time again to to film as as that lingua franca between myself and the students to be able to, um, you know, every year I know a little bit less about their music or what TV shows are watching and they know a little less about mine. But um, but films we still seem to have in common. And so when I'm whenever I'm looking for a way to explain a concept or an idea, I, I turn to Hollywood. Yeah, I'm not yeah, surprised. I've had those same kind of things in my teaching. I found that depending on what I was teaching, especially history related, I somehow could reach them quicker if I at least showed something video related. It, it at least it understood they understood it enough to at least be willing to look at it in more detail. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the book now, though, because that's obviously the reason you're here. Uh, in the introduction, you gave a, a brief history of the Cold War, but you centered on many of the issues related to film. Uh, before we talk about the rest of the book, can you discuss the importance of film during the Cold War period? Why was it such a popular subject, at least for all kinds of filmmakers, both directly and indirectly? Well, I think you have a, an interesting sort of combination of, of events um, just as the Cold War is getting going, film is is really becoming um, one of the more popular uh, forms of media. Certainly, radio was very important throughout the the um, Second World War uh, for news. Um, you had newspapers were the preeminent form of of news gathering, and film had been growing. Um, certainly, film in the 1930s. Uh, even even after 1934, going to the production code era, film was just it seemed like every year getting more and more popular. Coming out of the uh, war, and even even through World War II, um, certainly film is is very important. Uh, it's being used both sort of as overt propaganda in in films that were being um, supported by government agencies, um, the Why We Fight series, and so forth, but also. Um, the kind of messages that that Hollywood wanted to portray uh, when America went to war, Hollywood kind of went along, and and you got um, uh, certainly a lot of of patriotism, a lot of overt patriotism in in film. Um, you can see that throughout the the forties, and then getting into the Cold War era as we move beyond um, World War Two, film of course continues to be very popular. You've got the um, Certainly, that's the height of uh, I, I think of that sort of nineteen forty, forty five, forty six to about nineteen fifty two, fifty three as being sort of the height of the film noir. Um, although it wasn't being called that in America at the time, the height of the film noir era, and uh, and you've got that going on. But at the same time, you've got the sort of early stirrings of McCarthyism and the Red Scare, mm -hmm. and the entertainment industry certainly came under uh, some scrutiny. Uh, some of the things that that people were able to get away with during the war as well, some of the uh, sort of overly simplistic tropes that you saw in comic books um, during the war with uh, with Captain America punching out Hitler and, and that sort of thing, um, that even comes under some attack. And there's uh, Congress seems to be deeply invested in trying to find out um, what is going on in our popular culture and, and how it might be influencing um, young people, how it might be influencing broader culture. And so filmmakers were more tuned to what messages they were sending, how they were sending them. Hollywood, uh, I'm sure there were plenty of people who felt in Hollywood that they were somewhat under attack. And then very shortly thereafter, starting in the 1950s, Hollywood comes under an attack in another way with the rise of television as television 
goes from being something of a, a bit of novelty and something that's that's more based in um, in the big cities, especially on the East Coast, um, starting to get nationwide television, coast to coast television programming by the 1950s. Um, and again, Congress jumps in there with the with the quiz show scandals of the late 1950s. So you've got political pressures, you've got economic pressures, you've got uh, cultural pressures, all these sort of things playing out uh, in in Hollywood um, in the 1950s and into the 1960s. And of course, in the 1960s, you start to have the breakdown of the production code, um, and and you see some some filmmakers starting to take some different chances. It seems like just about everything that happens in our culture plays out. On film, um, whether it be juvenile delinquency in the in the 40s and 50s, um, changes in in, uh, in in dimensions and dynamics between the races, between uh, men and women, as we move through the 60s and into the 70s, um, it all it all winds up somewhere on on film, and uh, it it just it casts such a uh, such a bright light on on so many bits and pieces of our of our culture and our understanding that. As Americans, we are our lives are are displayed on film all the time, and so really being able to to just to take a, a brief moment in, at the beginning of the book to to explore um, some of the ways that the Cold War influenced filmmaking um, as a, as a sort of an important juxtaposition to how culture gets displayed on film, I thought was important um, at least in the introduction to, to give readers. And my assumption is that. You know, plenty, plenty of people coming to this book are going to come for the film side of it before the history side of it. Uh, I think the film part is is going to be the more compelling reason why someone might pick it up. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that I, I, you know, gave enough of a background there so that people who are coming at it maybe um, with a little bit less of a history background would be um, would have some uh, would have some of the um, the basics for themselves. That's, that's funny. I'm, I'm actually coming the other direction because I'm a history, you know, I've got a master's in history and, and uh, one of the things I looked at in a lot of detail as part of my master's program was the Cold War. And so um, I'm sort of, one of my favorite books during the, that period of time was called the, the Cold War and Popular Culture. And it mentions films, but it also talks about other things. So it really does, the concept of how the Cold War was looked at by the average person and how it was presented to them was um, quite interesting as a topic all by itself. So, of course, what you tried to do or what you're doing in your book is to show us where things have changed or what kind of things we should look at now as the Cold War ended and, and, and how things have altered or possibly stayed the same. So, um, what did you use for your structure to frame the book? What did what were you trying to basically do when you were putting together your various chapters? We'll talk about individual chapters in a second, but I just wondered if you had any thoughts about exactly the way you structured the entire book. Well, I mean, overall, what I was really looking to do was um, when I when I look at the uh, the Cold War, and I I've, I've studied it as well. Uh, the Cold War is so. Um, so it's just an overarching part of American culture, and, and there are a, a number of books um, that that discuss this, and books and articles and scholarship that show just how uh, how important the Cold War was in every part of American culture. And it struck me that if there's something that's this important, that's this big, that is this uh, all encompassing, that its absence must also be uh, important. And so. Um, so what I really wanted to look at was how do you how do you sense that change? How do you how would you explain that change? 
and especially, you know, more and more, um, my, my students were not alive during the cold war. They, it, it is, it is the distant past to them. They don't really understand, uh, maybe fully or fully appreciate, uh, just how big a deal the Cold War was for those of us who were alive during it. And so um, I, what I really wanted to do was look at a variety of different um, aspects of American culture uh, that, that people might be familiar with and, um, and use some films from the late Cold War era and the immediate post-Cold War era and compare them and show where some of these changes are. Um, this, this incredible absence that, you know, it, it, it was one day there was this, thing called the cold war we all understood it we, we lived our lives in a certain way we had certain expectations hollywood could count on certain tropes um to to advance a story or a narrative line because of uh the cold war and then it, very very rapidly um even though it had been coming to an end it it was just gone it was over and um, and the first place where I sort of noticed this was really in, in the sort of spy thrillers. Um, I had written a paper co- contrasting uh, the Jason Bourne post-Cold War character with the James Bond Cold War character. And uh, and that the difference between those two characters was one way was where I was able to explain and describe some of the things that the end of the Cold War meant. And, and the whole book sort of grew from that uh, from that paper. Um, that I gave at the uh, Popular Culture Association uh, a couple of years ago. Right. I know that's one of the things about good movies or good films. There should be multiple levels to them. And frankly, having a better understanding of some of the background adds to the enjoyment. Not that some movies can't just be enjoyed for themselves, but the background definitely uh, adds to the whole process. And sometimes uh, what, what makes a film great exists on multiple levels so you can you can go back and you can watch films from a from another era and see great filmmaking and great performances uh but you might miss some of the some of the subtlety some of the nuance some of the humor some of the um some of the 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 drama if you are unaware of the context in which the film was made and so i've always approached um Film in any text really tells you, on the one hand, the story it intends to tell you. On the other hand, it is an artifact of the moment in which it was created. Okay, let's take a look at some of you. I think the great thing about the way the book is set up, you purposely have multiple – you don't just do a chapter per topic. You sort of – Try to combine a little bit to to bring out uh, some of the points you're trying to make. Let's talk first off, though, about the initial chapters, uh, particularly the whole issue of superheroes. Uh, chapter one of the book, you talk about superheroes in general. But in chapter two, you decide to focus directly on one um, superhero. So why did you cho- why did you choose to focus on Batman? Uh, why was he such a great character for this study? Well, actually, one of the things that, that I, I really came to understand um, was that sometimes the superhero is is actually less important than the um, than the villain. And one of the nice things about the Batman franchise is that it's rebooted um, on opposite sides of the of the Cold War line. So the first uh, Batman film directed by um, Tim Burton, Tim Burton uh, was in 1989. It's it's being made at a time the Cold War is still going. It was heavily influenced by 
um, a couple of the uh, of the Batman comic books. Um, most importantly, probably the Killing Joke, which I think came out in eighty six or eighty seven, and um, and that's when he starts to really uh, when Burton really starts to to frame an idea for how he wants to approach this. Um, and they removed some of the, you know, they removed a lot of the campiness of the television Batman um, for this treatment. It is, it is a darker um, sort of a, sort of a treatment. Um, but the, the Joker as the villain there, in order for a, a superhero film to really work, the superhero has to represent something about something aspirational in us, uh, whether it's um, a heroic quality, uh, personal strength, fortitude, whatever. The villain also needs to represent something. It needs to represent something that, that we actually have a fear or anxiety of. Otherwise, it's if if that falls flat, um, if we don't aspire to be the, the the hero, and if we don't fear something about the villain, then it's just not going to work. And and we've seen this. There there are definitely films that um, that. Uh, that have it, you know, everything seems to be in place, but it just doesn't quite, uh, hold together probably because one of those, um, one of those issues. And so having that and then being able to, to have the Christopher Nolan Batman, um, and to be able to, to bring the Joker character back that, that quintessential Batman villain, um, the greatest of all Batman villains to bring that character back and to have that character be so different in part because we are different. Really. And so that 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 chapter, you know, first looking at, at superheroes, I, I try to discuss in the first chapter um, the meaning of superheroes and the meaning of their villains and, and, and some of the changes that we saw and some of the and, and this mirrored in, in comic books, although the books are very there's so much more detail and there's so much deeper. I didn't want to get into that because that's a completely different study. Um, but in, in looking at how the films portray um, superheroes, it was it was easier. Uh, look at the first Superman uh, movie from 1978, and I, I, guess, I guess not the first, but the the first of the modern Superman films with Christopher Reeve, and um, that you know Lex Luthor as as a villain just sort of shows up in the film as Lex Luthor villain. There's no real backstory, there's no real explanation. He's just hi, I'm Lex Luthor supervillain. How are you? Um, and you can get away with that to a certain degree because, of course, the story is Superman, great American hero, um, and and you know he's fighting for truth, justice, the American way. And then you get to the more modern, um, the Man of Steel, where Superman is is portrayed much more as an outsider. He he's he never says truth, justice, in the American way. He um, he he grapples with his being alien more so. There's there's a little bit more complexity because you don't have the simplicity of that bifurcated cold war world, you need to have, I think the audience requires a little more complexity in the backstory of their heroes and their villains with the Joker in the Batman chapter. Uh, I think that the first time round, the Joker is uh, definitely playing upon um, vanity. It's an important issue. It's the 1980s um, vanity, nostalgia. They, they're sort of everywhere in the 1980s. Um, and, uh, and by 2007, 2008, when, when Nolan takes his run at, uh, at the Joker, the Joker represents the, the abject terror of, of chaos and of a, of a, of a, of a terrorist that can't be sublimated by, by money or by any of the normal trappings, uh, of power. The, the film takes great pains to say, you know, some, I think it's Alfred actually says some men just want to watch the world burn. Um, and, and this is 
a character that makes much more sense to to us in a in a post nine eleven world in a, in a world that has dealt for for a number of years with um, with real terrorism that that doesn't want um, merely to be you know the old old style criminals uh, in in the Batman movie um, the mob just want their cut they just want their money they just want what little power they have the Joker wants something else he actually set sixty million dollars on fire to prove right, that it's right. not about the money. Um, and and that shift, I think, helps make that film a very successful one. If you tried to create or recreate that Jack Nicholson version of the character from 1989, that film would have fallen flat. Even even you go back and you show that film to people nowadays, they appreciate the film. They like that it's Batman. It's it's you know there's a lot of fun. There's some there's some fun moments. And 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 Jack Nicholson is you know a a, a very good Joker. Um, the character itself. Um, what the character means, what the character stands for, doesn't seem to resonate in the same way. I remember in the 1980s, I remember a lot of people, you know, I was a kid at the time, a lot of kids enjoyed the movie because it was Batman. But I also remember people, my parents watching that film and people of my parents' generation watching that film, and they sort of identified with the character a little bit differently. They saw some of the the nuance of, of vanity and, and, and um, his uh, sociopathic qualities as as being the more interesting part of the movie than the superhero, the caped crusader part. Well, it's funny because the it's it's interesting that the TV Batman, which I unfortunately or fortunately was young enough to watch when I was a kid, uh, has actually made a. Um, it's it's starting to show up. It's showing up on television now. IFC is running episodes all the time, but I and I was. A little older than you when the first Batman came out, and I agree with you. It's interesting that for whatever reason, I think it was contract reasons, Jack Nicholson gets first billing in the 1989 Batman movie. And frankly, it seems to me that that's the way the script was written as well. It seems like we spend much more time paying attention to uh, Jack Nicholson's, like we get his introduction before we even get Batman's uh, background information. And I make the point in, in the book, too, that, you know, certainly that the, the vanity thing um, runs through it because the first time we, we meet um, the Jack Napier character, uh, he stands and primps in front of a, uh, of a very large mirror. The first time that we meet um, the Bruce Wayne character, there's a giant mirror in the room. Um, and then when, when Jack Napier becomes the Joker, he looks at himself in a mirror and smashes the mirror. Right. Uh, he rejects the visage that he sees. So there's a number of places where that, that comes up and it even carries over a little bit into the next film. Um, when, uh, the political consultants meet the penguin right as he's about to launch his candidacy for the mayor. And, and someone looks at him and says, not a lot of mirrors down in the sewer, are there? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so there's this, this, this notion continues on, but that's, that's kind of who we were in the 1980s. When you, when you remember back, it's, um, we were, uh, perhaps a little bit more of a vain, um, culture in part because, you know, the defining generation, the baby boom generation was starting to hit middle age and, uh, and, and the concerns of, of middle age vanity, uh, are important. That's what's more interesting even about the newer one, you know, the dark Knight film is that where the, the 1989 Batman, uh, Batman spends most of the movie saying, I'm not like you, even though Jack Nicholson's character, like in the bell tower scene, keeps saying that you made me and I made you. Mm-hmm. Where in the nineteen in, in the Dark Knight, it seems like uh, Batman spends most of the movie trying to prove to himself that the Joker is re- incorrect, that he, they're not part of the same 
uh, thing. And then I think to an extent he loses because to a large extent he's forced to do things he didn't really want to have to do uh, just because that was the only way he saw himself as a chance to do it. Yeah. And of course, you know, our, our modern anxieties are all over that film in other ways, too. I mean, you see that, you know, ultimately, how does he how does he stop the Joker, the big terrorist? He he sets up a web of of cell phones that is, is able to. I mean, it's straight out of the Patriot Act, right? right? It's, it's it's using the cell phones to um, to, to track things through vocal recognition patterns and so forth. Uh, the, the sort of surveillance state um, sort of a thing. I mean, it's 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 something that just makes sense to, to the audience of, of today. And, um, and you know, the other thing is, of course, when you, when you follow a superhero through two, three, four films, there's, there's not a lot of new stuff you can do with the hero. So the villain becomes even more important. Um, you, you want to root for the hero. You want the hero to defeat the, fi- the villain, but what else are you going to learn about the, the hero? The hero by the end of the first film is sort of set. He's got, you know, and so, what they did with James Bond. They just, they gave him a new car and new gadgets and a new love interest every time, but there's no new depth to the character of James Bond. Um, Jason Bourne uh, is, he's able to unroll these things a little bit longer. It's over the course of, of the three films starring Matt Damon, he is discovering things about himself because he has the, you know, of course that the vehicle there is he's lost his memory Um, with, with Batman we get the origin story. We get the we get the love interest. What's going to be new about Batman, other than a handful of new toys? What's going to really be new is the challenge that any good villain will give him, and that becomes so much more important um, to to the superhero genre. Uh, I'm seeing this. You know, you're seeing this right now with with X Men. One of the ways that they keep that movie fresh is by going into the past and delving even more into the origin story of the heroes and and that's been that's been their key in the last two films to be able to really sort of organize their a greater understanding of who these people are from the beginning because real realistically moving forward all they can do is add new x people and um and otherwise the characters are kind of static so to, to to really build that story um, to to go into the past and to to revel in the past. That's that's another opportunity you have. You're not going to do that with 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 Batman, or maybe you are. I don't know. I, you know, short of rebooting the series every third film, which some series appear to be trying to do, um, you you need to give more screen time and more complexity to the villains if you want to keep sustaining the audience. Well, I think it will be interesting to see what they do with Batman now that Nolan's not involved. The next Batman is. Ben Affleck, and that's a different, that's a Superman Batman film, and we don't know how that's going to be treated versus the, the, you know, the Batman that's the most recent Batman that we're familiar with. Yeah. Um, Speaking of spies, because you mentioned Jason Bourne and a little bit about James Bond, one of the things that I found interesting with your, uh, partly because I understood it so well, uh, your discussion of James Bond and Bond, more than any other spy that I can think of that people would know from films, was a, was a character that could easily have been destroyed completely by the end of the Cold War. Can you talk a little bit about why he had to go through so many changes? Why the, 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 the whole uh, James Bond franchise could have been – could have ended? Yeah, I think that it was – the thing about Bond is he's so – mired in the cold war he's such a cold war character that when the cold war ended 
um, you have a real crisis on your hands there because you've got your main character has been linked completely to this to this one thing, and you know you you go back and you look especially at, at the Connery uh, Bond, but all the Bonds really up until the end of the Cold War, so that goes all the way up until Timothy Dalton. Um, everything that they do is structured around around this understanding of of the um, the Cold War uh, and the and the power structures of the Cold War. So he is um, he's he's the ultimate insider. It, certainly, it's it's easier for the hero to be an insider during the Cold War when we really do expect the government to protect us from the big bad, from communism and foreign forces. And while Bond doesn't always run up against communism directly. Uh, they use the um, they use the device of of the sort of the third party terrorist who's going to play east and west against each other to try to win to try to, to gain that advantage. There's always that sense of there's it, it's the easy trope. There's always someone with a heavy Eastern European accent who is the you know the the, the principal bad guy, and there's always some sort of intrigue and um, certainly by the by the late 60s and 70s, there's a lot of intrigue around potentially nuclear weapons um, or going into space um, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, this was the this was simplified the structure of the Bond film to a certain degree. You you knew where the where the pieces were going to line up. You knew how the film was going to open, how it was going to start. Um, it was it, it got formulaic after a while, which was maybe to the detriment of of the franchise, especially during the Roger Moore years. You even saw when there were attempts at at improved east-west relationships. It showed up in the James Bond movie. Roger Moore's James Bond mentions detente in multiple films, um, and there's a there's a couple of uh, opportunities where uh, because it is uh, a sensitive nature, a third party or a rogue individual who's trying to destroy the world, where you'll have east and west work together briefly, um, and and so forth, and and uh, um, you know a nod to sort of the mutually assured destruction concept when when that goes away when the cold war goes away it's not so easy to be the insider anymore and we start to see more and more films where the outsider is celebrated and and that's you know jason bourne who who is in a lot of ways this beautifully post-cold war american character because unlike the character in the in, in the book and again that's a whole different thing that's a very cold war sort of a story but in the film jason bourne is the product of of the cold war he is he is a a almost built from the ground up super assassin spy kind of a character, but he has awakened in this post cold war moment where he doesn't know that about himself. And when he finds out, he, he doesn't want that to be true. And so the, the bond franchise, I mean, they tried to keep it going, but once the cold war was over, what did they have for villains? They tried South American drug Lords. It didn't really work. Um, they brought in Pierce Brosnan, a man who more than any other person I've ever seen on the planet was born to be James Bond, right? He has the look, he's got the swagger. He, he, yeah, is, I, think, I think they wanted to use him before, um, right. And he, Timothy and Dalton and he couldn't get out of his Remington steel contract. Yeah. And so he, and so he just, he embodies it so beautifully. And in that first, in, in early in the first Pierce Brosnan film, you have that scene where Judy Dench as M says, you know, I think you're a Cold War relic. I, I, but then the next scene, you see people with fur hats goose stepping around in in the former in a former Soviet republic. They they want to get away from that. They're conscious of the idea they want to get away from that, but they still can't find a way to get away from that. They try North Koreans, but realistically, 
North Korea is never going to be as scary as people who made the remake of Red Dawn found, never going to be as scary to an American population as was the sort of monolithic Soviet communism. Um, and so you, you see the, the Bond films, while still somewhat commercially successful, um, for what they were hoping, the films just sort of they, – they, they're, they're starting to, to, to wither a little bit. And of course the other part of it that you, know, you certainly don't want to forget is right about the time that you've got Pierce Brosnan bringing the Bond character back, you've got Mike Myers – bringing in the Austin Powers character and taking direct aim. And I think I'm pretty sure uh, uh, that the last couple of uh, – if you look at the, the, the Mike Myers, Austin Powers films, they come out in the same years as, as, as at least a couple of the Bond movies and outperform them and out-earn them at the box office. Um, so Bond becomes a, a parody of himself uh, because he can't escape this, this Cold War identity until they go back to – the books and redraft and, and start over with Daniel Craig. Yeah, they basically rebooted it again only. And once again, though, they had to change it because the original Casino Royale was very much tied into uh, uh, the Cold War. And of course, they had to do away with all of that because that was the first James Bond book. And it was clearly very much involved with the Cold War. It was, you know, the, the whole death despise concept. And of course, they had to jettison all of that for the first film but and, and it comes up again yeah it, it the the this time that you see instead of m um with with the with the uh with the period process of m saying well you know you're a cold war relic and you're a misogynist and you need to update your ways now you have the the unique situation in um in in skyfall of m going before uh members of parliament and defending saying look i know that that, you know, there's computers and all this and terrorism and so forth. We still need human intelligence. We still need the double O program. And it's 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 very much sort of saying as as much as the world has changed in this post-Cold War moment, there's still necessity for for this particular program. The other sort of nice thing about the Daniel Craig version of Bond is he doesn't have he's he's not a man without a past. He we do start to learn a little bit about his past. We give him more depth, more nuance, more complexity. The Sean the Sean Connery um version of of Bond was essentially just a sociopath. He he killed and enjoyed it. He um he slept with women interchangeably and randomly. He didn't he didn't seem to I think at one point I can't remember which film it is. It's it's early on. It's a Connery film where he goes to a hotel room. He's going to you know planning on sleeping with a woman. She gets thrown out a window. Another woman comes in. It was her henchman who do it. So he just sleeps with her. It's the utter interchangeability of of women in that in the Bond universe um, speaks to a level of 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 just sort of uh, disconnect from humanity. Uh, the Daniel Craig Bond doesn't have that. He, he is more connected to humanity. He does. And he's portrayed more as an outsider as well. Whereas Connery is an insider. He does everything he does for queen and country. Um, Daniel Craig's uh, Bond, when we, we've, we, we get that scene early on, on, on the train with, uh, between him and Vesper Lynn, where she kind of, you know, breaks down the tail of the tape there. Who is this guy? And she said, you know, you, you look as though you've, you've, been to the best schools and so forth, but you wear your suit with such disdain that clearly it's that's not who you'd like to be. And he really does. He sort of pushes back, um, just like Superman goes from being an insider in the first to the Superman the movie in 1978, and then the, the follow up in 1980. Um, compared to Man of Steel in 2013, where Superman, you know, at the end of the film, 
he he crushes a military satellite. He hands it back to the military. And says, "Look, you know, I'm I'm going to be around and I'm going to be helpful. You don't have to worry about me. But I'm not going to I'm not work. I don't work for you either. And I'm not going to let just let you follow me around and and so forth." He he really sort of pushes back. And this idea of our heroes being insiders uh, more often during the Cold War and our heroes being outsiders more often in the post Cold War era, I think it's one of those places where that's one of the changes when you talk about what's different between the Cold War era and today. That's one of those real tangible ones that that um, I like to point to. Okay. Um, later on in the book, you talk about the whole issue of related to identity, uh, both before and then after the Cold War. And in particular, you mentioned three different groups, although they're interrelated, adults, males, and females. Uh, what kind of changes did we see or have we seen in, in film as to how these identities are portrayed? Well, I think that there's um, I think that there's a moment there after the Cold War where where we do have a little bit of an identity crisis. Um, uh, what it means to come of age in in the Cold War era often meant um, something along the lines of military service or social service. There was this this need to uh, support the country in this grand struggle against international communism. Um, and so the way we portray coming of age films for young men and young women um, is that's that's a part of it. And then we move to the post-Cold War era and, and coming-of-age films seem to deal less and less with this sort of outward service and much more about, uh, about sort of inward things. Um, and and kind of sadly, um, the, 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 the coming-of-age story, um, instead of it sort of revolving around uh, self-actualization, self-realization and so forth, it just revolves around sex. Um, the, the, that post, not that there weren't films like that in the seventies and eighties, but it seems like those weren't the, the A films. Those were more the B films. Those were the films that were going to wind up, um, on late night cable and, and, and things like that. Whereas now, you know, the, one of the most popular franchises for coming of age films in the post-Cold War era is the American Pie series, which is, uh, it, it's, it's built around the notion that what makes, uh, a young man into a man is merely sexual conquest. And there's no sense of, of sort of a, a larger or, or broader mission or goal or, or, um, or service of any kind. And, and certainly we did have that, that gap there in the 1990s where, um, we didn't know what that meant. And, and I think it affects adults as well, because you have this sense of, well, what does it mean to be, uh, a man or a woman, or even what does your American identity mean? Um, it meant for so long standing in opposition to communism. And when that goes away, there is a time of, of questioning. And, uh, and that's what I try to hint at here um, in the book is trying to figure out when people have midlife crises on film, how does that manifest itself? In the 80s, the midlife crisis was often about downsizing and, and sort of reestablishing your place. And, um, and, you know, of course, because Michael Keaton's all over the place in this, in this section with Mr. Mom and, 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 uh, and, uh, and so forth. And I guess, uh, also the movie gung ho, uh, both these films are a little bit of that challenge to manhood. Um, Albert Brooks in, in, uh, in, in, um, is it, uh, lost in America? Uh, there's this sort of challenge to manhood, this challenge to the ability to sort of earn a living and, and then getting back to that. And, and how do you establish your manhood in the 1980s? You make money. You, right. you sort of, well, in, in the, in the, in the post-Cold War era, where does that go? And, and one of the great, uh, for comparative sake, one of the great films to look at that would be, um, American Beauty, uh, where the, the lead male character is completely emasculated the way he is. Uh, portrayed in in the film I mean, early on in the film 
Um, the family is all going off to work and school and so forth. And, and it's uh, Annette Benning who's driving and the teenage daughter, I think it's Thora Birch is in the passenger seat. And, and, uh, and, and, and Kevin Spacey's character is in the back seat, kind of slumped down, half asleep, like a child or like a, like a teenage kid, um, very much a boy, not really a man. And, uh, and, and it, the only way he can sort of think to reestablish and, and other male characters have this, have these other issues about, you know, true manhood and so forth. And, and the only male character that seems to have it together, that seems to have any sense of who he is himself is, is the teenage kid who sells pot. Um, and that's, that winds up being how, um, even the name Lester, right. Um, uh, is, is supposed to be evocative of that. The only way he can find to reestablish himself is to return to what he craved as a, as a, as a young man, as a 19, 20 year old guy. It's, it's all about virility and sex again, um, is how he's going to reclaim his manhood. So I think some of this is, is sort of indicative of a, of a crisis in identity. When you, when you have been identified for, for half a century as the people who stood up to communism and the people who stood up to Nazis and so forth. And then it's the 1990s and, and suddenly there's no one to stand up to for a while, and it's just not the same. We do have to sort of reimagine or re recommit to understanding uh, who we are and and how we get to demonstrate our adulthood. If if between a coming of age film, how we get to demonstrate being a man or being a woman, um, or a midlife crisis film, what does it mean as an adult male or as an adult female to go through a midlife crisis and come out the other side? Uh, and so that's what those chapters are really getting at is is this notion of identity and, and how you explore it and how you express it. Yeah, it was, it's interesting. You're right. You're talking about the 90s were interesting in the sense that there wasn't war going on for people to use as a linchpin as we might have during the Cold War or World War II. Uh, have you seen things in the last 10 years now since we've once again been in a position where there's – war going on as far as differences or, or changes in film that have shown this return to some of this? Yeah, absolutely. You're, um, you know, now that we're back into that sort of situation, you're seeing a lot more portrayals of war and soldiering on film and, and a lot more of this, uh, of, of that returning to that structure of being able to demonstrate, um, you know, your, your, your adulthood, uh, through sacrifice or through defending um, the homeland or the nation or service in war, um, you seeing it, 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 you know, all over culture. I was struck just recently. Um, I, I was uh, I was in a hotel um, in the evening, so I'm flipping around the channels and seeing um, so many of these representations, the, these sort of new representations of of what it means to to be an adult and um, and just thinking about the connection to that sort of militaristic background, uh, there was uh, the, the CrossFit games were on TV and um, and the whole structure of the CrossFit movement is very uh, – it's very stripped down, bare bones, militaristic. It's it's all about sort of pushing yourself. Um, this this martial culture I think has, has come back um, at uh, shows on television that are about um, – you know, military people or, or recently returned, um, veterans, uh, that just keeps coming back and back. And, and you see that appear. It doesn't take too long after, after the, um, after the, the second Iraq war starts to start to see that permeate, you know, the, the, the immense popularity of something like 24, um, uh, Homeland, um, some of these other television shows. And of course, um, you know, all over film as well with, uh, 
uh, with with um, what was the Oscar winning film a couple of years ago? Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, Zero Dark Thirty. And the Hurt Locker. Uh, yeah, and Hurt Locker and these sorts of things. These, these sorts of films that it, it, it is coming back. You weren't seeing a lot of that in sort of the in that in that middle period that 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 unique period that I think is going to wind up being something we study a lot going forward um, between the end of the Cold War and nine eleven, the, the sort of the nineties, those years um, that that it was. Uh, You've got that sort of unique moment where we are not, for a brief time, being defined by our enemies or by the wars that we fight. So what else are we going to do? And and sadly, I think the answer to that question, at least in a lot of ways, was we started fighting with each other. It's interesting. I think about the only film I can think of that took place during that period that was military related was uh, Black Hawk Down, which, Mm -hmm. of course, was during the 90s. But I don't remember – when it was made or when it came out off the top of my head as to whether it was actually produced after we went back into a wartime situation. I also found it interesting, if you think, go back into the end of the Vietnam War, we went through a long period where filmmakers just avoided it as a topic. They would not do films about Vietnam. There were a couple during the war. Um, um, John Wayne made a famous one. but Yeah, Right. The Green Berets, but the Vietnam War—it was like everybody wanted to forget about it, and yet we get current films nowadays that are actually about a conflict that's still going on. Well, and I talk about this a little bit in in the book about the notion of redemption, because one of the things that we do is we seek to um, we seek to fix Vietnam on film. Um, you know, the first the, sort of the after the war is over, the first wave of Vietnam films were really about the extraordinary toll that that war takes on soldiers on individual soldiers I'm thinking of coming home right. the deer hunter platoon um, apocalypse now really about sort of the, the broken individual um, and and how the war took a toll on on psyches and on, on people and so forth but it doesn't take long in the 1980s where we start to and we don't do it specifically in Vietnam but we do it on film movies like Top Gun, um, the Missing in Action series, the Rambo series, which really seem to be about redeeming those those same soldiers, about the idea at one point in – I think it's one of the Missing Action, one of the Chuck Norris films. You've got this this extraordinary moment where you have Chuck Norris hiding out in the jungles of Vietnam, fighting a guerrilla-style campaign to free Americans. And the Vietnamese are – you know they have uniforms and they've got Kalashnikovs and they're, they're the organized ones. Within you know six, seven, eight years of us going out of Vietnam – in, in defeat and in sort of this national moment of anxiety about this, this crisis of, of anxiety about losing a war, we suddenly – we're the underdog. We're the good guy. They're the big bad guy again and it was completely turning that around. It was a whole series of films in the 1980s that have these younger, um, almost always male characters who seem to have to pick up a fallen father figure in some sort of military – um, or militaristic uh, um, milieu, uh, and has to sort of have to sort of solve these problems and refight that fight. I mean, that's that's a lot of what's at Red Dawn's core, the original Red Dawn. That's a lot of. Um, I think Tom Cruise made that movie four times. It once as Top Gun, once as as Days of Thunder, um, where he's sort of a, a young, brash kid who 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 needs to overcome the sins of his father, and it's it's this. I see that a lot of that as sort of a collective um, unburdening of of the Viet, of the burden of the Vietnam generation and, and the failure of of that of that campaign. Of course, the other thing about 
Red Dawn and some of the films during that period was we were also in what became the last major in in a last major Red Scare period where Reagan was in office and suddenly we were back to believing that a nuclear war could be won. And so Red Dawn is an example, of course, the day after the TV film. Yeah, but, that's which, 82, 83, where, where we were once again terrified of right. the notion that, that, that you know, the, the nuclear holocaust could come, that the Soviet Union could come. But at least in the terms of, you know, really not in, in the day after, but at least in terms of, of Red Dawn and, and some of these other films, um, we're allowed to, to renegotiate that and to come out victorious. Speaking of which, though, let's let's go on to the to the topic of one of your chapters, one of your later chapters, and that's what about this whole nuclear holocaust issue that became such a big deal during the Cold War? Not just nuclear holocaust, but also things like the films where a nuclear uh, a nuclear bomb could cause monsters, from something as simple as the Godzillas to some of the more uh, uh, end of the world films. Uh, how are we seeing changes with that now that the Soviet Union's gone? Yeah, so that's um, so I wanted to sort of bring the book to the end. The last couple of chapters talking about how the world ends on, on film, and uh, I, I do think you know the, the Godzilla example is, is an, another extraordinary example of where a remake can really teach you something. And, and the original Godzilla, of course, um, the monster that's 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 stomping around trashing Tokyo is us. Um, it's it's that's the sort of a Japanese filmmakers. Um, way of dealing with this, you know, the, the nuclear uh, destruction that was rained down upon Japan by the United States. And we've completely reappropriated that. And now we've got, you know, the modern Godzilla films where we've got New York or an American city being destroyed. Um, and, and so another another great uh, uh, opportunity for this uh, and one that gets more, maybe more to your question is the, the day the earth stood still. The original film in 1951 of course this is born of fear of of advancing our weapons technology and we have the alien klaatu who comes here to try to tell the people of earth look you know the rest of the universe has taken notice um we're we're watching and if you don't calm down with with your destructive ways we'll we'll come in and we'll we'll set things straight um and uh and and then you have the keanu reeves uh, Klaatu, uh, the remake in, um, more recently in the last decade or so. And it's not fear of nuclear weapons. It's fear of environmental de- degradation. The, the Klaatu in that movie comes to earth to say, um, you're killing your planet. Your species is doing this and the rest of the universe is noticing and we will wipe out your species if we have to, um, in order to, to, to save the earth. And that's, I think, the critical shift. One of the things you saw is in the Cold War, a lot of times the destruction was going to come in a nuclear sense. It was going to be technology that was going to destroy us, um, even when it was metaphorical, um, towering inferno, trying to build too high the airport movies, trying to make too big a plane or too big a, you know, it was it was technological hubris that was going to be our, our downfall. Um then after the Cold War, it became more about environmental concerns. You know, we had two volcano and two meteor movies in about a in about a, in about a year and a half uh, in, the, in the late 1990s. Oh, we um, had two of them coming out within two months from each other. Deep yeah, Impact and Armageddon were out within months of each other. Yeah, they they just they were right overlapping each other. And then and you have these 
um, the day after tomorrow, these environmental, it's it, suddenly um, even the core, which was uh, um, sort of tried to have it both ways. It was um, the earth's going to suffer major environmental destructive impact because of an old Cold War nuclear program. And and, and we go from nukes being our our the, uh, the, the path to our destruction to nukes are going to save us from, in the case of the core, the Earth's core slowing down in the case of, of Armageddon from, you know, we're going to use nukes to blow up these asteroids that are coming at us or these meteorites that are coming at us. Um, it's, it's an interesting shift, but it's, it's, a, it's one that takes very little place in time between the first and second Terminator movies, the first Terminator movie. And these two movies are so similar, right? The two Terminator films, the first Terminator, it's, you know, this cyborg comes back from the past to try to kill this woman. In the second movie, the same cyborg comes back to the to the past, this time in order to save this woman's son. And in both films, they sort of end with the Sarah, Sarah Connor character reflecting on sort of what she's learned. And in the first movie, it's the 1980s, and it's a very dark future. She says, you know, I know war is coming, and it's all going to be bleak and bad, and I, I look to the future with nothing but terror – then the next movie comes out, and it comes out just after the Cold War is right. end. And she goes driving off, thinking, "Well, for the first time in a long time, I'm looking to the future, and it's not so bad." And I think that's that's indicative of, of a, a transition, a change in our culture that we saw as well. That we suddenly weren't as afraid that the world was going to end in 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 a, a sort of a day after a nuclear holocaust kind of a moment. That we actually saw. Um, I remember uh, President Bush called this the peace dividend. When we weren't fighting the Cold War, suddenly things were going to get better. There was going to be um, more more funding for social programs because we didn't have to spend so much money defending against the Soviet Union when it wasn't there anymore. And while that maybe didn't come to full fruition, it certainly manifests itself on screen. Um, and we still like disaster movies. We still like the world could come to an end movies because it nothing gets your juices flowing like you know pending doom. But the the sources of those doom are different. Even look at a lot of the modern. Um, the current superhero film, there's a tone of environmental degradation at its core. The Man of Steel movie, one of the things that he has to save the planet from the planet being used as a – was it an Earth engine or a planet engine or something like that that, 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 um, that General Zod was going to just soak up all of our resources. Um, the Iron Man movies, uh, Iron Man stops making weapons and wants to make clean energy. You know, These, these are very much post-Cold War stories. Um. What what aspects of post Cold War cinema should we should we continue? You've mentioned it quite a bit through your talk, but what should we continue to be watching for? What are we likely to continue to see? What did you discover the most as far as what's changed so much uh, in the post Cold War uh, film industry? Well, one of the things that I think that I've, I've really enjoyed watching um, is is that since since the um, end of the cold war and the end of the uh the sort of aggressive oversimplification of good versus evil that that took place so often um you know usa good uh communist bad um that that both our heroes and our villains now in a lot of the superhero films but also in in some of the spy thrillers and so forth their their backstories are much more complex there's more nuance there's there's a sense that there may be a reason why people are are bad. You don't have to agree with it, mm-hmm. but you can. You can. You're allowed. The audience is allowed to understand it better. I think that there's maybe a little bit more 
um, respect for the audience's ability to suss out what is good and bad um, in the post-Cold War era. I'm thinking of um, everything from the Magneto character in, in the X-Men films. Um, who, you know, yeah, he's the bad guy, but he's a bad guy. You can understand, you can, you, you get where that comes from, um, or the mystique character, you get why these folks feel a need to, to pursue things. I even see it as early as a film like the peacemaker where, um, the, the, the bad guy terrorist bomber, um, you get a sense of why, and, and you're allowed to understand this, why you no longer have like a Lex Luthor wandering on screen and saying, hi, Lex Luthor, evil genius, um, you get a lot more of, of the story and the reasons why. And I think that just, it's better, it's better storytelling. Um, and, and that makes it more fun. So that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed, um, charting the progress of that. That's great. Uh, well, to wrap things up, what are you working on now? Uh, I got a few irons in the fire right now. Um, uh, I'm moving away, uh, to a certain degree from, from film right now. Um, I'm actually looking at, uh, because it was one of the reasons I, I, I use film in the first place um, is trying to see how to make a connection to this generation of, of college students. And so um, I've been, I've been doing a lot of work in that lately uh, and that might be the next project that gets finished. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll have to see that that's, I'm, I'm really right now very interested in um, how better to communicate and, and make connections with this modern generation of students and film gets to be part of the way there. It's been interesting. I've been looking at the various titles that the Film and History series is published, and I'm really happy that there's that series is there because we're getting some very interesting looks at at films and in a very detailed way. We don't have to worry about overall um, large scale examinations anymore. We can start to look at some of these topics as they uh, in very good detail such as your books and some book and some of the other ones as far as being able to get that detailed on a topic it really has uh made for for some great reading and great study yeah i think the the, the title that just came out after mine isn't it the smart women yes on some that I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that one that looks really interesting yes so well brent i really enjoyed our talk I really appreciate that you took the time to speak with me. You really gave me a good understanding, and hopefully our audience too, uh, of what you wrote and why you wrote it. And uh, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Bryn Upton, author of the book, Hollywood and the End of the Cold War, Signs of Cinematic Change. I found Bryn's book to be a great view of film after the Cold War, and I hope you will find his work interesting as well. I'm your host, Joel Cherney, and I look forward to being back soon to discuss more new books in film. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.